Revelation chapter 22. This brings us to the end, then, of John's glorious vision. It also brings us to the end of this vision within a vision, we might say, that began in the middle of the previous chapter, where John was carried by the Spirit to a high mountain, and his view was expanded, and he was able to see the expanse of the city of the New Jerusalem, and to take in its boundaries, and to see what was inside, the splendor of it and the wonder and the detail. This episode continues in to Revelation chapter 22 and ends in verse 7. And so that is how the entire vision comes to an end as well. John then gives us an epilogue, concluding remarks that extend from verse 8 to the very end of the chapter, uh, which is verse 21. As he does so, he has an interaction with an angel that's very similar to something that happened a few chapters back. So we'll talk about that. After this interaction with the angel, there's a shift to the voice of the Lord himself in verse 12, and we hear from him uh, for the last time in this vision uh, as he addresses us uh, in first person. Then his testimony is added to by an angel, as we read in verse 16, fulfilling the law of witnesses. And then John adds another layer of testimony and witness to this as he brings his writing to a close and gives us this beautiful benedictory remark in verse 21, where he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. With that introduction, let's go back then to verse 1, which again is the ending section of this mountaintop vision of the city of the new Jerusalem. And we see a few new images that we have not seen previously in this vision. And they're very familiar to those of us who read the Book of Mormon. We're treated to the first of these images in verse 1, which says, And he shewed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. This image allows us to circle back to a conversation or, or to a topic that, that recovered in Revelation chapter 1. The idea that there have been other prophets through the ages who have been afforded a similar vision to the vision of John, seeing many similar elements and writing about them. John's calling was unique, as Nephi teaches us in 1 Nephi chapter 14, to record what it was that he did and which is embodied in the word apocalypse or apocalypsis, which, as we might also recall from Revelation chapter 1, means an unveiling. And so when we consider all of this, we come to an understanding that this vision is something that the Lord seems to have given to others. And we, we can certainly infer that from uh, 1 Nephi chapter 14 as well. And so the elements that Nephi reported on included a river, a, a river of water, 
just like John is reporting on it here. So this is tremendously interesting. Nephi told us very directly in 1 Nephi chapter 11, verse 25, that these waters are a representation of the love of God. John himself was so eloquent and articulate in reporting what the Savior had said about, about him being the living water, and there's certainly a relationship. We can recall this verse in John chapter 4, verse 14, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be a well, in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. We find this beautiful expression in an entirely different era when the Psalms were penned. In Psalm 46, we read about a river that uh, makes the city of God glad. I, I want to read these first four verses because of, of the images they create. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Salah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. I think that passage is so fitting to read at the end of this survey of the book of Revelation because it helps us understand how to take it all in. We find that this river being clear as crystal, this living water, this love of God, as we've established, and this gladdening current, we might say, uh, proceeds out of one throne, uh, the throne, yet it's coming from God and the Lamb. This connotes the oneness of the Father and Son. This, this living water comes from both of them, and John was very eloquent in other passages about talking about the oneness uh, of the Father and the Son. And we have this expression from Alma when he's speaking to Zeezrom in Alma chapter 11, verse 39, that the Son stands as the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth and all things which in them are. So this water of life then flows from God, the Father, through the Savior to mankind. We, we don't want to miss then the association with the Holy Ghost with this water as well, because he too is most certainly represented by these waters that flow. We can, we can tell that that is the case because of many biblical passages that associate water and the Spirit. Uh, no one was more eloquent on that point than John. We can think, of course, of John's um, recounting of the Nicodemus episode when he, he provides us with the Savior's words, telling us about being born of the water and of the Spirit. So there's that association. We can also read from John's first epistle, the fifth chapter, verses 6 through 8, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. 
and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Then we get this incredible and beloved image in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 22. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We'll talk about several of the details that come forth in this chapter. This first phrase that talks about it being in the midst of the street, uh, it's hard to correctly translate the Greek of this text. And, and one possible way is to pluralize the tree. We'll take the tree in the singular here and talk for a few moments about how this brings so many things together for us to see this image of the tree of life. Here, I think, is the ultimate resolution of the biblical narrative. It's, it's really the resolution of the Exodus story that is the basis and the model for all other Exodus stories in the Bible. I say this because if the Bible is doing its job, or uh, more appropriately, if, if we as readers are doing our job, as we read this record, when we read the account of the fall, we should feel this sense from the very beginning of the Bible that, that this fruit, which is so desirable that we learn uh, from other scripture, this fruit was in Adam and Eve's grasp it would have had more appeal to them than anything else around them. But to their everlasting credit, they had to go a different way. And we appreciate them for this eternally. While this precious fruit was within their grasp, they did not taste it. Ultimately, after partaking of the fruit, of the other tree, they were not allowed to because of the cherubim that were placed in front of it to guard it. Really, as readers, we have had a sense of cognitive dissonance ever since reading this episode in Genesis. We've been waiting for the moment in this biblical narrative where Adam and Eve, and by extension us, can come back to this tree and partake of this fruit. And this is what happens, incredibly, at the end of the book of Revelation, and is the way the Bible is now put together, the very last chapter of the Bible. The presence of this tree, then, in verse 2, tells us that the redemption from the fall of Adam and Eve, at this point, is complete. We can remember that Nephi said in 1 Nephi chapter 11 uh, that the beauty thereof of this tree was far beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty, 
and the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. And we can read elsewhere, of course, about the desirability of the fruit. And so this city of the New Jerusalem is truly the New Eden. And we have this tree standing in its midst. But in this case, the cherubim have been removed. And so finally, God's people are able to do this thing that they were not able to do when we read about this at the very beginning of the Bible. They are able to eat freely of this fruit. This is the thing that we all look earnestly forward to. And we read with great interest Lehi's description of this fruit and and what it meant to him in this vision. There's another characteristic of this tree as it's presented here in verse 2 that we do not find in the Book of Mormon account. We do find it, however, in a vision uh, that is recorded by Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12, it says, And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because there's wa- their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. So now as we go back to Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, we find that in addition to this fruit, that it is yielded every month. And that's to tell us that there's a perpetual harvest. It, there, it is not seasonal in the sense that we're, um, that we're accustomed to in mortality, where there's a long wait between harvests. It, there, it also, I think, could have an allusion to the number 12, really, in the perfection of priesthood, which has facilitated the tasting of this fruit, to, to have it yielding its fruit every month. And then we find that the leaves themselves also play a role, and it says that that's for the healing of the nations. And that, that's very similar to the language then that Ezekiel uses. Then we get this hint in verse 3 that John did indeed have the fall of Adam in mind because he says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And, as it says in verse 4, They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. This notion of seeing the face of God is expressed so beautifully in the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 1. Verily thus saith the Lord, It shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins, and cometh unto me, and calleth on my name, and obeyeth my voice, and keepeth my commandments, shall see my face, and know that I am. With the hope of that verse in mind, then, we can read this account of John and see that that does indeed occur at the very end of this journey, that we shall see his face, and then this, that his name shall be in their foreheads. We've talked about this a great deal already in the book of Revelation, uh, about this mark in the forehead. There's something interesting about this on on many levels, and I think one that I'd like to mention before going into some great commentary by Elder Bednar is simply uh, something that I have said previously, which is I think that we are readable to our Heavenly Father 
and that he can read somehow our countenance to the degree that it is as though writing is on us, is on our foreheads. We, we might recall that the whore of the earth had writing on her and that the, the rider of the white horse had writing on him. And we must have writing on ourselves as well that indicates that we have taken the name of God upon us completely. Uh, this has got to be what Alma understood when he asked rhetorically if we have his image in our countenances. I'll move now to this, this quote by President, uh, or excuse me, by Elder Bednar, who associates this concept with temple worship in the following way. In the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, the prophet Joseph Smith petitioned the Father that, quote, thy servants may go forth from this house armed with thy power, and that thy name may be upon them. And that's section 101, or excuse me, 109, verse 22. Elder Bednar continues, he also asked for a blessing over thy people upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. And that's in verse 26 of section 109. And as the Lord appeared in and accepted the Kirtland Temple as his house, he declared, quote, For behold, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be here, and I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. And that's section 110, verse 7. These scriptures help us understand that the process of taking upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ that is commenced in the waters of baptism is continued and enlarged in the house of the Lord, in the ordinances of the Holy Temple, we more completely and fully take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. So in this verse, in verse 4, it's the last time this concept is expressed in the book of Revelation, but there is a merging then of the idea of us fully taking upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ and what it is that our countenance manifests. Then we return to language that's similar to the previous chapter in Revelation when discussing this place, this glorious place. And it also mirrors some, some language that we find in Isaiah, which I'll read in a moment. And there shall be no light there, says verse 5, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19 says, The sun shall no more thy light by day. The sun shall be no more thy light by day. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Now we come to the end, again, of this, of this vision of the city of the New Jerusalem, but also to the end of this entire account of this entire panoramic vision that's wrapped up in verse 6 and 7 by saying, And he said unto me, and this is the angel, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to shew unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. It would be accurate in a way then to consider this as the end of John's vision. Uh, and then, of course, we have this epilogue 
that that extends to the end. But this expression, I come quickly, can be hard for us to understand. And uh, it's going to appear two more times in this chapter. And, and, and we're also going to read in verse 10 that the time is at hand. Well, it has been a really long time since John wrote these words. And so it helps us to remember that the nature of time for us and the nature of time for God is different, and that John is straddling two worlds as he writes this. He's, he's in this eternal world, and he's trying to transfer meaning from there to us as readers. So, so that's one issue. Um, the author of Hebrews talks about this in, in eloquent ways as well. Um, about about the day of, of a thousand years for us being like a day of the Lord. I didn't say that correctly, excuse me. And it's Second Peter chapter 3, where Peter says, Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So we have that to help us understand I come quickly. We also understand that his coming for each of us is personal in the sense that now is the time for us to prepare to meet God. Um, Of course, we are talking about his overall coming here as well, though. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie gave us yet another angle to this I come quickly statement. He said, I come quickly, um, not soon, but in a quick manner. That is, with speed and suddenness, after all of the promised conditions precedent have occurred. And then, at the very end of this, in verse 7, we get a, a beatitude of sorts. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. What a perfect way to end the entire book of Revelation. Now we move into John's epilogue, and we find an episode here that's, that's very similar to the thing that happens in Revelation, uh, chapter 19, verse 10. So it happened pretty recently in our reading. It reads like this, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which shewed me these things. Then he saith unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. This expression, fellow servant, uh, was also in that earlier account in Revelation 19. But in a way, it's literally true if we think about this expression in section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 5. There are no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or have belonged to it. And so, in this sense, um, any angel that would be speaking to John or ministering to him or ministering to us are our fellow servants. They, too, um, have, have gone through a mortal journey on this earth. I think it's helpful to ask why this episode happens again. And to return to this question of, of why it would be that John, who was so familiar with the Savior, 
would feel compelled to kneel at the feet of this angel and and bow to him. Why would this happen? It 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 defies reasoning uh, that John could mistake this being for for God, and in fact, it doesn't seem like he is mistaking him for God. One possible reason I think um, is that the scope of what John has taken in and the glory of what he has taken in is just so broad um, that, that this was his reaction. I think another possibility is that his gratitude at this point, after seeing all that he had, would have been so profound. And uh, it, it, it's possible, I believe, and this is an I believe statement for sure, but it's possible that in seeing all of this, he could have received an assurance that he would be among those who are saved, who he's seeing among these throngs of people who are singing praise to the Lamb that was slain. And so his sense of gratitude would have been overwhelming. And then another possible explanation, of course, is that this angel's glory would have been such that it would have been like unto God's, uh, because this would have been an exalted being, uh, at least in the context of this vision. And so perhaps it would have felt appropriate to John, who was certainly no stranger to the Savior himself and to his priesthood order. Then John is told this by the angel in verse 10, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, we've talked about I come quickly just a moment ago. Here's a related but different expression, for the time is at hand. When we think of John's storyline, we think of the way in which the great apostasy was actually the next thing to occur. Uh, and, and so again, it helps us to understand that in an eternal sense, uh, the time most certainly is at hand, and the time for us to follow the instructions in this beatitude in verse 7 to keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book, that time most certainly is at hand for each of us. Then verse 11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. We're not just drawing a contrast then between those who will make it into the company of God and those who will not, but we're talking about the continuity of character that seems to take place when we're restored. No one expressed this concept with more clarity than Alma to his son Corianton in Alma chapter 41, verses 12 through 13. And now behold is the meaning of the word restoration, to take a thing of a natural state and place it in an unnatural state, or to place it in a state opposite to its nature? O oh, my son, this is not the case. But the meaning of the word restoration is to bring back again evil for evil, or carnal for carnal, or devilish for devilish, good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is unjust, merciful for that which is merciful. So something very similar seems to be happening here in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 22. Now we shift to the voice of the Lord. We've been hearing from the angel, and 
it's as though the perhaps the angel is speaking in the man, manner of investiture of authority. Um, th- that's just me. I, I'm not certain of that. But all of the sudden, it is the voice of the Lord that we're hearing from in verse 12. So it says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. And then we get this in, in verse 13, this same direct language from God himself, uh, which is so appropriate for this epilogue. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Here's another beatitude type statement that is wrapping everything up. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. We talked in the previous chapter about the significance and the sacred nature of entering in through these gates and a quote uh, by Brigham Young who describes the meaning of the endowment. And then again, we have the Lord himself saying, they may have the right to the tree of life. This is the thing that we want the very most is to return to that tree and to partake of it again. Then he draws a a contrast between those who achieve this uh, and those who do not in verse 15. For without, and remember the measuring stick too that we saw in the previous chapter and earlier in chapter 11 of Revelation where measurement is making of the temple and measurement is, is, is taken of, of the dwelling place of God in the new Jerusalem and, and how that implies that there are those who are without. So without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murders and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. And then that's all he says about that and then returns to this imagery saying in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. We learn about the root and offspring of David in other scriptures, and and they're very instructive. Um, We talk about it earlier in Revelation chapter 5. Isaiah alludes to it as well. He is the root of David uh, spiritually, and of course, genealogically, he's the offspring of David. And then this wonderful name title, The Bright and Morning Star. Then this in verse 17, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Such a beautiful expression and is bringing us back to the concept of this river that we read about in verse 1. And we can think of the beautiful things that the Savior said in mortality. For example, at the Feast of the Tabernacles in John chapter 7, when he said in the last day, that great day of the feast, contrasting that with the feast that he's speaking at, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now we come to an oft misunderstood verse. Um, I think it can be best understood in the context of the scroll and the way that the scroll was described in Revelation chapter 5 and compared to the language of Ezekiel where we're told that this scroll with the seven seals is, is full of writing 
uh, uh, within and on the back side. And that indicates that it's full. It's a complete record. It should not be added to. It should not be taken away. It should not be rested. It should not be tampered with. It, it has to be followed in the way that it's laid out. The Savior said something similar about the doctrine of Christ when he introduced that in 3 Nephi. I think that is the way that we should understand verse 19, where it says, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. By this point, we as readers should have such an earnest desire to have our names added to the book of life and to become members and inhabitants of this holy city, that this language should speak to us in really strong terms, that uh, we should not alter these words. Um, I apologize. I think I neglected to read verse 18 in connection with this. So let me read verse 18 and 19 together, just in case I didn't a moment ago. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So uh, we as readers certainly don't want to do that, and doing that has little to do with with, with um, accepting other volumes of Scripture in addition to the Bible. Uh, that is not the meaning of this, and, and that it, it, Elder Holland really helps us um, with that particular line of reasoning that, that is often used, and I would add that to do so is to rest the message of verses 18 and 19, ironically. Here's what Elder Holland says. One of the arguments often used in any defense of a closed canon, so a closed canon would be that no other volumes of Scripture should be added to the Bible. Uh, One of the arguments often used in any defense of a closed canon is the New Testament passage recorded in Revelation 22, 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. However, there is no overwhelming consensus among virtually all biblical scholars that this verse applies only to the book of Revelation, not the whole Bible. Those scholars of our day acknowledge a number of New Testament books that were almost certainly written after John's revelation on the Isle of Patmos was received. Included in this category are at least the books of Jude, the three epistles of John, and probably the entire Gospel of John itself. Perhaps there are even more than these, but there is a simpler answer as to why that passage in the final book of the current New Testament cannot apply to the whole Bible. That is because the whole Bible as we know it, one collection of texts bound in a single volume, did not exist when that verse was written. For centuries after John produced his writing, the individual books of the New Testament were in circulation singly or perhaps in combinations with a few other texts, but almost never as a complete collection. Of the entire corpus of 5,366 known Greek New Testament manuscripts, only 35 contain the whole New Testament as we now know it, and 34 of those 
were compiled after A.D. 1000. The Lord chooses to end this record through John uh, by saying through him, in verse 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. So that's the third time that that expression is used. Then John says, Amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And then we circle back to this benedictory expression by John, which is of such beauty. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Uh, This last expression of the book, and really of the entire Bible, as these books are now compiled, uh, provides us with the means for preparing for his coming. Uh, Because the grace of he who will give triumph, the the Lion of Judah, as we have have learned that he's called in Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb who was slain, uh, the very figure who was unveiled in John's apocalyptic vision, the bright and morning star, even Jesus the Christ. As I finish these chapters in the book of Revelation with you, I personally testify of his divinity, and I commend him and his saving power to you. I'd like to end this with the words of song that are taken from chapter 5, where this, this central figure, the Lamb who was slain, is presented to us as readers, and, and the way that this is presented at the end of Handel's Messiah. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, and hath redeemed us to God by his blood, to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Blessing, and honor, glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. Amen.